0: Hello, everyone. My name is Deilika Gottlieb, and I would like to welcome you to European Health Union Now, a podcast series produced by the European Health Forum Gastein for the European Health Union Initiative. Hello, and welcome to the eighth edition of the European Health Union Now podcast series which is centered on the topic of political determinants of health today. Within the discipline of public health, it's commonly understood that health outcomes are influenced by more than genetics and behavior. Many health problems can be linked to other determinants of health, like commercial, social or political determinants, that create and contribute to existing health inequities across Europe. As experienced during the pandemic, we encounter problems when politics suppresses professional expertise and facts and figures. In order to achieve a true European Health Union, a series of national and EU decisions are required. And there is concern amongst the health community that the process that started in 2020 may have slowed down and needs increased attention to use the window of opportunity health has had due to the pandemic. And I'm really looking forward to speaking about this and more with my guests today. I'm delighted to have a conversation with the member of the European Parliament, Istvan Uyhely, and with Mihai Kőkényi, former Minister for Health of Hungary. And both are also champions of the European Health Union initiative. A warm welcome to you both and big thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Dorley.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Very nice to have you both here today. Thank you. I'd like to start with you, Istvan. Could you please frame for the audience what is actually meant by political determinants of health?
1: Thank you, Dorley, and it's really kind to be here, and it's my pleasure to. Have this meeting with my friend, former minister, Mihai Kokenye. So I hope it will be useful for the audience. Uh, the Bible of public health is the Ottawa Charter, which was burned in uh, 1986. And for the first time, stated unequivocally that health is not created in the healthcare, nor is it lost there, but in the settings of everyday life where people study, work. Play and spend their free time. In addition, a number of studies have proven that health is influenced by a number of social, environmental, and economic factors. And it can be seen that these determinants largely depend on political decisions. We also witness the increasingly political nature of the health agenda. Just remember the recent pandemic response is the power of global industries such as the pharma, food, tobacco manufacturers, are sometimes their invisible touch with politicians, and more. The literature is talking on the political determinants of health. This term was introduced by Ilona Kikpash in uh, 2015. Health is a political choice, and politics is a continuous struggle for power among competing interests. Looking at us through the lens of political determinants means analyzing how different power constellations, institutions, processes, interests and ideological positions affect house within different political systems and cultures and at different levels of governance. And I'm going to stop here and ask Mihai to jump in and give us some great examples. He's the professional, I'm only a politician.
2: I'm a former politician, but anyhow, I am also a professional also in the field of public health. So Istvan gave us the background and then quoted the famous term stated by Ilona Kinko seven years ago. However, you know, let me give you just quickly some examples. You know, I mean, it happens in the day-to-day governance in most of the countries. You know, there are a couple of questions to be decided. For instance, are political expectations exhausted in the management of the healthcare system, in the management of patient paceways, or do they cover the health impact of other portfolios? Or is there an incentive to choose a healthy lifestyle? I mean, I think protection of non-smokers, regulation of the choice of school canteens, health-friendly tax system, and so on and so on. And what kind of budget support the institutional system of healthcare and health promotion? However, and what I would like to emphasize here, the basic question to be asked, and I think it's important during the current crisis, to be asked by the responsible policymakers, goes a bit beyond the health system. Is it acceptable just to focus and improving health systems, make quality services available, but forget about or neglect the living or housing conditions contributing to ill health of people. So I think that type of bias has to really be discussed all the time when we are talking on the political determinants of health. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much to you both for setting the scene for our talk today. Mihai, when we're Thinking of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a lot of focus on health inequalities due to the pandemic. What are some of the lessons that we've learned?
2: So two and a half years after the beginning of the pandemic and perhaps towards the end, it can be said with responsibility that the world, including EU member states, they're not well prepared for this public health crisis. Despite the earlier warnings of experts, the countries behaved, and sorry for being a little bit blunt, in a panicked and hasty manner following political considerations with a very few exceptions, I think so. In Austria, for instance, 70% fewer people died from the pandemic than in Hungary, yet they reacted with complete lockdown to the outbreak of the fourth wave, while Hungary introduced only slight restrictions. So, I mean, there are a couple of country examples. I'm not going into details. But I have to mention that there have been some success stories from the EU part, such as the joint vaccine purchase or the introduction of the EU vaccine certificate, I think that has been good steps to the right direction. Overall, health inequalities have increased, and even the improving trend of the life expectancy and birth has reversed in most of the EU countries. And it is a pity. And mainly because non-COVID health services have been disrupted in most countries. The EU has done a lot, especially through the EMA and ECDC, but it could only do so much due to a lack of competencies. I'm convinced that if the EU had stronger health powers in a public health emergency, there would have been no fragmented country-specific politics-driven pandemic responses. We would be more advanced in managing such crises, at least in the 27 member states, with much more transparent and accountable measures, risk-based restrictions, and uniform and sometimes binding technical protocols. That is my conviction.
0: Thank you, Mihai. I think we all agree that there is a lot that we have learned during the pandemic. And I think we also have learned what we want to avoid in the future or how we want to be better prepared. Ishman, what do you think? What are lessons learned from your perspective? And do you think the EU did enough?
1: It's a very difficult question. Uh, not, not the question, the answer. <laughs> difficult. <laughs> uh, but Mihai gave us a great overview. And I would like to add some things as well. It is a fact that uh, the coronavirus has highlighted that the European Union does not have strong enough tools to deal with an emergency such as the spread of a novel infectious disease, which by its nature knows no borders. While the EU has significant competence in public health, health care systems remain the responsibility of member states. We know it very well. With minimal cooperation at EU level, it may seem a bit morbid to say, yet a pandemic with a tragically high death to help can have a positive effects. And I know, I repeat myself, it's morbid, but uh, I'm thinking uh, here of increased attention and support for research and development that leads to new discoveries and cures, reinforced European solidarity, or in our case, the creation of the European Health Union. The pandemic has exposed the weakness of the immune system of humanity, including the European Union, at points that were previously thought to be strong and impenetrable. Yes, it can be safely said that COVID has clearly helped and fueled the creation, acceptance, and even wider implementation of the European Health Union. So the answer what the EU gave was positive, but uh, sometimes wasn't enough. That's why we are talking about how we can make a better European Health Union. For me, for example, one of the most important cornerstones of the European Health Union must be to reduce the gross disparities between the quality and patient safety indicators of healthcare systems. So that a European citizen who needs treatment in an Eastern, Eastern European hospital, for example, in our beautiful uh, country in Hungary, for example, does not have less chance of recovery or even survival than their Western counterpart. Everyone deserves an an adequate level and quality of healthcare. I think this is the most important message to us.
0: So if you see a chance in the crisis?
1: First, it is important to understand that the politicians are interested in short-term successes to get re-elected. Most public health investments pay off in life expenses longer than the duration of one political cycle, for example. So, Therefore, in addition to state strategy, short-term incentives should be provided for citizens to make healthy choices. For example, expanding physical activity opportunities, reducing VAT, for example, of health-friendly food or rewarding participation in cervical cancer screening. I think most of these things to do are important. And yes, I think we can work on it and we have wider and stronger movement to support the European Health uh, Union. And if you ask how can politicians, parliamentarians become health Advocates what public health can do, I can give you some tips. For example, create a sophisticated advisory team in the health ministries, which is not just the Ministry of Disease Management, but knows more on macroeconomics, has experienced negotiators and good knowledge of public health evidences, or learn that most politicians have a simple concept that what health system is about, and they just do not understand the health determinants, the responsibility of other sectors. Therefore, public health needs to reach out to the public and inform citizens through the media and testify that the majority of uh, the premature death and disabilities can be prevented. Journalists must be provided with uh, ammunition. What are the best by interventions for, for example, NCD control? is good quality and longer life became a broad social demand. Politics must reflect on this. And of course, uh, there are several other examples and tips. Uh, only one more, for example, build up a health centred climate in the society, involving local authorities, churches, like uh, minded groups. Of course, uh, it's not only on European level, but uh, as a politician, who was also a member of the local government in my beautiful city in Szeged. Also, I was a member of the Hungarian parliament and the government. And now I'm working on the EU level. I can tell you all the levels of the political decision makers. We have lots of things to do.
0: Thanks very much, Istvan, for this insider knowledge of what it takes to make politicians more aware of what social drivers of health are what do both of you think the most important political determinants of health are and how to approach in equity at this time? Mihaly, could I ask you first to answer this?
2: Well, I think um, Istvan has provided a couple of tips and advices, you know, what should really be done. And then of course, you know, I think it's really, really very, very important uh, you know, to deal with all these opportunities mentioned before. But let me add just one more, if you don't mind, you know. And I do think it's also very important that there is a need to create alliances to do the job. I think that businesses such as food manufacturers, at least those who feel it is important to provide healthy choice or associations of various private entities could really be allies in fighting against the non-communicable diseases, which all have common risk factors, as we all know very well. And then what is really a little bit the science, but also the art, how to find a type of win-win situation to be achieved with them. And what is also important, we need to engage top level. We need to engage the prime minister's office, the parliamentary committees. And I think it's also really, really very, very important, you know, to find, uh, you know, the way to find all the contacts, to find those who feel that a health friendly environment is really important for us. So I think these, and in addition, what Istvan has already mentioned, could really be, I would say, tools to provide more awareness among politicians of social drivers of health.
1: Miha is absolutely right. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we are both Hungarians. So we know some Hungarian health data. Uh, let me tell you some, uh, which are, I think, very interesting. More people are dying of hospital infections in Hungary than in car accidents the cancer figures are equally alarming in the central and eastern european region mortality rates of tumor related diseases are massively above the eu average each year the e- e- european region uh, for example the average each year with hungary as the tragic record holder were according to the eurostat uh, 345 out of 100,000 people die of cancer. But I know even more shocking that uh, according to the an official uh, professional survey in uh, 2014, the life of nearly 32,000 people could have been saved in Hungary if the public health care system had been better and would have been able to intervene more quickly. This is the population of a smaller town uh, in my homeland. And it is just a Hungarian example. No one should be excluded from health care, and we must reduce the inequalities. And we must invest more money into the health care everywhere in Europe uh, and especially in Hungary.
0: Thanks very much to both of you for that. Mihai. As I mentioned, both of you are champions of the European Health Union initiative. So I think we're safe to say we all strive to build a true European Health Union. What do you think are key mechanisms that are most important to keep in mind?
2: So if I may start with this, I think uh, the European Health Union is probably a really, really very important initiative. That's why I I uh, started to do uh, my best, you know, to a little bit popularize, you know, the whole concept and the supporting measures in my country and among the professionals I can reach. But I also think that the European Health Union will be a successful enterprise in the case if it relies on a wide professional and civil network, in addition to carefully prepared projects and measures in the institutions if it constantly consults with non-state actors in the decision-shaping process. So in order to clarify the benefits of a stronger EU health competencies and to assess which of the planned steps are considered important by actors in my country, let me tell you that last year, FEPs sponsored research was carried out together uh, with Istvan and with a small team of professionals. I had the privilege to be part of that. With the involvement of local governments and professional and non-governmental organizations in Hungary. It turned out that the European Health Union concept enjoys quite a lot of support in our country, mostly in the local governments, but also among the professionals. Despite uh, some government objections, so I just would like to provide uh, the six recommendations, which was made after you know analyzing the findings in this research. So let me just go through them very quickly. Firstly. We propose that a midterm program and a timetable for the implementation of the European Health Union should be developed, including arrangements for consultation with professional and non-governmental organizations so that everybody should know that there is a plan, what would happen in the next year and the year after and so on. Second, there is a need for a well-designed communication campaign which concentrates on the goals and benefits of the European Health Union. Third, it is worthwhile conducting research in several member states based on a common methodology that clarifies why the concept is so important for the population, why it is so important for the healthcare professionals, for the NGOs, and which measures should and should not be adopted. Fourth, greater emphasis should be placed on disadvantaged groups, particularly regarding their accessibility to care. Fifth, I think it is necessary to strengthen the EU's commitment to disease prevention and health promotion, including rolling back the risk factors of the non-communicable diseases. And last, but not least, the fiscal space should be created for the implementation of the components of the European Health Union in the EU budget, as financing cannot be left to the Member States only. There are some good signs, as you know, in the current semester, you know, this new budgetary period, you know, in comparison with the previous one, but I think this has to really be provided also in the future.
0: Thank you, Mihai, for sharing the Member State perspective on the European Health Union. Istvan, could you tell us, as a member of the European Parliament, where do the European institutions stand regarding the European Health Union?
1: It seems to me that uh, parallel to the end of the pandemic, uh, the interest and uh, enthusiasm for the European Health Union decreased. At the Informal Health Council meeting by the Czech presidency on 7th September, the term didn't appear once in the health commissioners' four public speeches. And many progressive initiatives have been launched so far under the uh, European Health Union project. Just check them uh, on the official website. But if I only look at the European Parliament's public health strategy adopted last year, there are still many measures to be taken. Let me mention just a few ones. For example, stress testing of EU healthcare care systems, a new directive for minimum standards in health care, the revision of the transparency directive for pricing and the reimbursement of medicines, a uh, full implementation of cross-border health care directive and the clinical trials regulation, and um, the legislative action on antimicrobial resistance and vaccination, European health data space, after that a new approach to European health research, and new legislation on health and safety in the workplace. You know, this is my seventh year in the European Parliament. Uh, And the first four or five years, I haven't seen so many plans, actions. And uh, then, uh, I don't remember, Mihai. I think it was about five or or four years ago. So before the pandemic, when we held one big uh, roundtable discussion in uh, Hungary, and we started to talk about the European Health Union, it wasn't the same time. <laughs> in that time, in the European Commission, in the Council or the Parliament, we didn't have so many fighters and uh, colleagues. Uh, but now, I can tell you, it's, it's another life, it's another situation. And uh, I hope all in the European institutions, in the European bubble, will have partners, not only to talk about it, but uh, also to have actions and uh, more and more new directives, for example.
2: If I may add just uh, one sentence. So I think we need to continuously renew our advocacies and the network, you know, to help, you know, to keep these items on the agenda. And I, I was very pleased that Isran and his team has organized at the end of June in Brussels in the building of the European Parliament, a very broad discussion, I mean, discussion with many, many participants, well over 100 participants, about uh, what should really be done. And I think it was really very promising that the top-level leaders of these organizations, starting from, you know, the patient organizations, then uh, also the uh, hospital organization, the European Hospital Association, uh, not to forget about the, the, the committee of the European doctors. I'm sorry, so, so sometimes <laughs> I'm not really exactly precise about all the names, but I mean, everybody was there and then they were so glad that at least there is a European MEP, a a member of the European Parliament who is committed, who really would like, you know, to go ahead with this. In spite, you know, of uh, the many other agenda items now, it's absolutely clear that at the moment there are uh, a lot of, lot of uh, concerns uh, in Europe, you know, because of the crisis, because of the war, because, you know, and then maybe that's not really very helpful for, for going ahead with the European Health Union, but still the NGOs seem to be very very happy with this. There is a fantastic knowledge, a fantastic expertise in these organizations, so I think it's really very important to continue uh, to rely on them.
1: That's why we would like to organize more and more common actions. The network, uh, the lobby network is very important. Uh, In the past uh, it wasn't very strong in the European bubble, but uh, now we have chance to have more partners. So it's my pleasure to be your some kind of ambassador or, or champion or networking maker uh, in the European Parliament.
0: Yeah, thanks very much to both of you for painting a rather positive picture of where we stand with the European Health Union, yet I think we agree that a lot more needs to be done and it's great to feel the atmosphere of a bit of a movement that's ongoing at the moment and there are more and more players coming on board. So one problem we have encountered lately is that some national policymakers seem to need some convincing. And there seems to be something of a misconception that a strong Europe in health will weaken health in member states or the authority on health in member states. Do you think that's true, Mihai? And what can we do to change that?
2: I'm afraid it's, it's true. So misinformation and disinformations are proving to be one of our great societal challenges. This is also the case with the European Health Union, as several member states believe and communicate. Sometimes I don't understand why. Of course I know some, some of the hidden, hidden, hidden uh, you know, thinking about it. but. Uh, member States thinks that uh, these type of activities carried out for the sake of a healthy Europe and the expansion or the possible expansion of health competencies undermine the nation-state sovereignty. And we have been talking about it. Even Istvan mentioned a couple of examples. For me, it is unbearable because there are huge differences in a couple of numbers. Just check. Eurostat data on health and healthcare in the 27 member states, and you can see these differences, whether you talk about the number of nurses available, whether you talk about the length of the waiting lists, uh, or, you know, the public money spent on healthcare, and so on, and so on. And I, I do think that the fate of the European Union is very much depends on whether the citizens of the member states feel the benefits of the community. And this is just not least on the basis of the social and the health dimensions. Probably it's enough just to mention that this has been very well confirmed by the discussions and the documents of the conference on the future of Europe. So just read this documents. And then of course, you can see that may be that the vast majority of the citizens have an absolutely different opinion about this than some member states have.
1: As we mentioned several times, uh, health is uh, currently an exclusive national competence. And as such, it is up to national governments to decide uh, on the regulations and practices they adopt for the sector. It is already known that uh, there are Scandinavian countries, for example, that are afraid of this common European system of rules. But so as not to go too far, the current Hungarian government is also opposed uh, to it because it feels, I think, uh, quite wrongly, that it is an intrusion into national sovereignty. And uh, in order to be able to create this system, the governments of the Member States, uh, as stated in the resolutions adopted by the European Parliament, must review their own health systems and identify the white right spots and areas for improvement. Only on the basis of all these can be developed and establish a set of requirements that can ensure adequate patient safety and quality care and working conditions. In other words, the first step must be to mobilize the national governments. I'm confident that we will achieve this goal even if at a slower pace than the other program points already implemented by the European Health Union. There is still a lot to be done in this respect, but for me, this is one of the most important goals for the European Health Union in the near future.
0: So Istvan, do you think the existing mechanisms within the EU are enough, or might we have to think of a treaty change to really bring about change?
1: Uh, this is the most interesting question. And
0: uh, Also a tricky uh, I question, don't know. I realize.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But we need to start one by one, uh, brick by brick. Uh, and the rock is rolling. We need a well-functioning European House Union, and we need minimum quality standards uh, for public health care systems in Europe. It is in the interest of all of us. I know that some member states are rejecting this, saying that health care is a member state competency. So it is every government's own responsibility to keep and operate it at the right level. Sure. But uh, if there are such differences and uh, inequalities between our systems, then we aren't able to defeat global threats in the future. Just a tiny hole in our common boat is enough to let the water slowly turn it to its side and eventually think disabled. Setting quality standards doesn't deprive member states of their competencies. However, we ensure with them the proper functioning of healthcare system and thus patient safety for all Europeans. We have taken the first steps in the past years, but we will still need to be able to jump a few obstacles to ensure a secure implementation. So I think that we need to associate more power and more money to the existing mechanism. And after this, we can have a look at the next steps and most. I would like to have, but uh, if you look around in the European political uh, structures, it's not easy to have it Uh, but there are more than 450 million europeans i have six kids and uh, i really would like to have for them the same quality when we are talking about the public health services where they will live or study or that they would like to have a family
0: Thanks so much for this Istvan. Could I challenge you with the same question, Mihai? A treaty change? Needed? Yes or no?
2: (laughs) Well, after the quite diplomatic but positive words by Istvan, let me be more straightforward in that way. I know, of course, what the political reality is at the moment. I'm aware of the priorities of the current EU agenda. However, I think that a health-related amendment to the treaties is a must. Why? My understanding is that the EU citizens expect more than just deliverables related to the contemporary two main pillars of the union, the single market, as well as economic and monetary union. So Europeans are looking for the new stage of development of the EU. And based on the humanist heritage of the continent, on the values, on the respect for human dignity, it is really time to include a new pillar, health and well-being, if I may say like this. And if we want this vision and WHO, very recently just adopted the Charter on the well-being, you know, in the so-called Geneva Charter on Well-Being, and also confirmed with the WHA resolution in May. So I think it's also important, you know, to study for the EU member states that what is it in. Of course, even it has been accepted unanimously, including EU member states. So if we want this vision, we have to tackle the treaties from the health perspective. And at the same time, of course, we should not just wait for a new treaties because I mean, it takes years, we know from the previous uh, stories. The amendment is possible in long-term, I understand, but we have to start right now. But in the meantime, of course, or parallel, there is a need to work, you know, countless small and large steps. We mentioned examples. Istvan has just mentioned the quality standards, which I do think is really very important and maybe probably could be the next step of the European Health Union. And I just hope that the European Parliament will a bit stronger, you know, to represent this idea. I hope so. Because this could really be the, the track for the common health policy.
0: Thank you very much for this clear commitment towards real change from both of you.
1: My excellent uh, colleague and advisor Zorta and her reason, next to me, answered immediately to Mihai, yes, indeed, <laughs> it was the answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So, a, a clear yes from Mihai and a bit of a reluctant yes, maybe from Istvan, more looking at the existing instruments and making the best use of them. And if we could wrap up today's talk with also a personal perspective, but also political, of course, on the European Health Union. Could I ask you first, Mihali, what is your perspective in a nutshell?
2: Yeah, (laughs) thank you. I've already retired from day-to-day politics. Of course, I am doing a lot of academic work and lecturing and and everything, but I'm not part of the day-to-day politics. And that probably allows me to be a little pathetic and recall a message from late John F. Kennedy, who said in 1963, in the Irish Parliament, the following. The problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by skeptics or cynics whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. We need a man who can dream of things that never were and ask, why not? And that's the end of the quotation. So there is a need really for committed, courageous, visionary people for making the European Health Union a reality. Thank you.
0: Thank you for this very inspiring quote. And Istvan, could we have your take on the European Health Union, your very personal but also political
1: take? There is no question. I think that one of the most important tasks of the European Union is the coming period is to invest in people. And make the strengthening of welfare and social systems a priority. I strongly believe that the imbalance in healthcare systems in the EU is untenable. The right to physical and mental health is a fundamental human right. And uh, because the European community is built on solidarity, inequities and inequalities in uh, healthcare systems must be addressed. Health is an outcome, and indicator of the social, economic, and environmental dimensions of sustainable development. So it's time to make health a priority area for the EU. And it's time to make healthcare funding a national priority in the member states. If you ask me, Dorli, is it a personal or political dream or goal? I can tell you this is the same because it's about... Our personal life. That's why we have to serve it in the political structures.
0: Thanks very much, Istvan, and a big, big thank you to both of you for joining me today, Mihai and Istvan, and for giving us some insight into this so relevant and timely topic.
1: Thank you so much. It was our pleasure.
2: Yes, thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: So big thanks to both of you. I thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. Please look out for further editions of European Health Union Now, the podcast series of the European Health Union Initiative. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Please visit europeanhealthunion.eu to learn more and support the initiative and follow us at EHU Initiative on Twitter. Stay tuned for our upcoming events.